Pastor Tom, it is a privilege to worship with you. I, I really did have a theological dilemma when a giraffe came up for communion. At the 8 o'clock service, I didn't know whether I should give it to her or not. And so, um, Megan, we love you. And if anyone could wear that outfit and do it justice, it's you. So um, please do go down there and enjoy uh, the pajamas and the pancakes and everything going on. Would you, right now, though, open up your Bibles and join me today in our word um, in God. God's Word, which is the first letter to the church in Corinth, chapter 15, page 801 in your pew Bibles, 801, and we're going to spend time through most of the chapters, so uh, not just these eight verses we're reading for our reading, so it'd be very helpful if you had it in front of you, and as we always say, if you do not have a Bible, don't own a Bible, didn't bring one with you, we would love to have you take that one home, that's our gift for you this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 20. Paul writes, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him... Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. For now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord God, we do thank you for this word that you say just a few verses before is of first importance. As we enter into this important topic of death, God, I pray that you would open up our hearts. As Lisa prayed, that my words would not be my own, but rather that they would illuminate the wisdom and truth and hope that we have in you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're, we're continuing our series on fear. There's two more Sundays after this one. And today we're talking about what is probably the most universal fear of all, and that's death. Now, many of you have probably heard this phrase before. Benjamin Franklin famously quoted it in a letter, and it goes like this. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. It is February, so we're all kind of thinking it, right? And I often quote the mortality rate in Walworth County where we live. It's, it's always hovered, as long as statistics go, around somewhere around 100% give or take nothing, because everyone dies. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all walk around and, and think about it in every moment of every day, but you'd be surprised that even in the moments when you're not, chances are good that what you believe about death is probably having an impact on how you live 
and on how you perceive the world around you. For example, one of the major headlines in the last couple of weeks has been the growing cases of coronavirus. Many of us have watched this. It's a very serious, uh, contagious respiratory illness. And as of Friday, I see, I've seen these numbers. I think they've gone up uh, even since then. But as of Friday, there were more than 31,000 confirmed cases around the world. Over 630 people have been confirmed to have died from this. And there's been at least three confirmed cases that we found just in our area, two in the Chicago region and one in Dane County, Wisconsin, the Madison area. Now, my wife Alyssa and I, we were talking about this the other night, and it reminds us of the H1N1 swine flu pandemic of 2009. How many of you remember that? Show of hands. Now, funny story, when I was at um, my last church, actually, before this, when we said the Lord's Prayer, we would hold hands, and it was at this moment, I believe, when we decided to start not holding hands and instead doing this, um, just out of sanitary reasons. Now, of course, we do it for a different reason, um, but I was reading, and I, I learned that between 11 and 21 percent of the entire world's population, that was between seven and 1,400 million people had contracted the swine flu during that time. And it's possible that over half a million people died. But I don't remember it because of that. I remember it because that's when our firstborn son, Jacob, was born. Uh, now, Jacob's 11 now, but he was, he was born then premature, and at one point, I had to ask my wife, Alyssa, I forgot, um, he had dropped down when he was in the neonatal ICU to three pounds, six ounces. And so when he came home, he was a little over four pounds, but he was still very fragile, and we did everything we could to protect his little life and protect ourselves from contracting this disease, which was in full flight at that point. I remember I was the guy who was going around to all the stores, we lived in Burlington at the time, and buying all of the stock of hand sanitizer that anybody had. I went out and bought all those masks, you know, and every time you came to our house, we were that people. I'm looking at Molly, who's laughing at me. She's a nurse. She gets it. You came to our house. You had to put on a mask. And, and we were those people because our son had started his little life so touch and go. He had overcome so much that we were prepared to do whatever it took in our power to make sure he didn't get sick because, frankly, we did not want him to die. See, that's why we're so interested in the coronavirus. That's why millions of dollars are being spent right now. There's researchers that are doing research around the clock to make sure that we do everything we can to prevent the loss of life, to prevent death. Death is why Apple and Fitbit and other companies have sold so many of these things that we call smartwatches. It's a story for another day, but my siblings and my wife, they all pitched in this Christmas and surprised me and bought me one of these Apple watches. And it's got this, this feature on it that, that has these rings. And these rings have been meticulously engineered to inject just the right amount of shame and guilt into you if you have not gotten up or done something in a period of time. I remember my wife, Alyssa, she got one of these first before I did. And at night, she would pace around the bed. And I would say, why are you pacing around the bed? And she'd say, because my ring is almost closed. And I used to make for this and then the other night that's what I was doing I'm like I'm almost done I'm almost done you know so anyway anyway why is it 
Like, why is this so important to so many people? Why have they done this? Well, because they want us to stay healthy. It's encouraging us to be healthy. But if you break that down, it's so that I don't die. <laughs> and no matter how many steps we take, no matter how, many, how diligent we are in, in washing our hands and sanitizing and wearing masks and all of that, the truth is that no matter how well you do all of those things, we still will all eventually die. And so I did a little research, and, and I didn't do a ton, but I, I read a few articles about this fear of death. There's actually a term for it, thanatophobia is the word. And I was reading these articles, and, and I was almost immediately depressed. And I wasn't depressed because of the topic of death, but because when I searched the fear of death, all of the articles that I found all talked based on the premise that because there's no way we can prove it, there is no life after death. And so the focus was that if there's no life after death, then we might as well just focus on living life to its fullest now because when you're dead, you're gone forever. And that made me mad. <laughs> and I was trying to think, like, why does this make me mad? And then I remembered that in our scripture today, just before the reading, Paul kind of says the same thing. Now, Paul is the apostle that wrote this letter, and he wrote it to a new church in a place called Corinth, and they started to go astray on many of the Christian values and the teachings that he had taught them at the beginning. And, and one of them, specifically, most importantly, that they were teaching the wrong lessons on was what they believed about death. And so Paul wrote them this letter, and he wanted to remind them of what's most important. And so if we go back to the, the third verse of chapter 15, he said this. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is what's most important, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is what the Bible said was going to happen, that he was buried, that he was raised from the third day according to to the scriptures again according to what was said would happen but maybe you don't believe in what was said maybe the bible isn't enough proof for you and so he continues he says then he appeared to cephas and then to the 12 and after that he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time most of them are still alive today though some have fallen asleep and then he appeared to james then to all the apostles and at last he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. I always wondered why that last verse was the same verse my parents picked for my baptism as one abnormally born. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I think I do know why. I'm just kidding. But the, the reason why he says this and the reason why he goes through all of this is first of all he says what's most important is that our faith is based on the premise of following this Jesus who is the son of God who came to this world, lived life, died on the cross, three days later rose from the grave. And he says, if you don't want to take the word of the scriptures for it, if you don't want to take my word for it, he goes on and says that there were literally hundreds of witnesses, hundreds of witnesses who were there who saw the resurrected Jesus. And when Jesus was killed, when he was executed on a cross, that was a public event. And so hundreds of people seeing him and going around and telling everybody about it, that would say something. But some people have said, well, maybe hundreds of people, maybe they just didn't know Jesus that well. Maybe somebody who looked like Jesus was the one that showed up, had the same beard, had the same robe, you know, those kinds of things. And, and if that's what you believe, then Paul continues and he says, but it wasn't just the hundreds of people that saw him, it was also the apostles, 
The 12 men who had spent, or 11 men, Judas was dead by then, but, but the 11 men who had literally spent three years of their life with Jesus. They couldn't possibly have not recognized who he was or saw somebody who was like him but wasn't really him. And if you don't believe that, then James also saw Jesus. James was the half-brother of Jesus. They took baths together, and he would know who he was. He didn't even believe Jesus was the Son of God until after the resurrection. And if you still don't believe that, then Paul says, the one abnormally born, that's Paul. He literally, before he saw the risen Jesus, he had literally been overseeing the killing of Christians. Talk about abnormal and unlikely. Paul says, this really happened. And he says it matters that it really happened because verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, if you came to church this morning because we make good pancakes, and we do, <laughs> but if that's the only reason you came to church, or if the only reason you came to church is you were looking for some positive tidbit just to take you through the rest of your week before you leave, and you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, what, James, what Paul is saying is that you're wasting your time, that the preacher is wasting his time, and yet that's often how we approach faith. It's often how I approach faith. When, when I'm looking for hope from God, more often than not, when I just think back and take an inventory on my prayer life, it's usually I'm looking for God for hope in this moment and whatever it is that's going on right now that's most important. And it's fascinating to me that not only is that the case, but then it's also usually what's going on right now that gets in the way of my faith, that, that maybe I don't pray when I'm supposed to at a certain time because of right now and what happened right now that got in the way, or I don't read God's word, or I don't worship. Now, Paul isn't saying that Jesus doesn't care about what's happening right now. He cares intimately about that. When he was preparing the disciples for his eventual death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven to be with the Father, all of that, he said he would send the advocate, the helper, the Holy Spirit to dwell in and through and around and with every single believer. He wants to be with us in the moment. He wants to be with us in whatever it is that we're facing right now. But Paul also warns, verse 19, that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. What he's saying is that Jesus didn't come only to answer your prayers about your health or your current circumstances right now, but he came to conquer the worst case scenario that could possibly happen in any scenario, in any situation, and that's death. It's like what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis talked about how a lot of people say, well, Jesus was a good teacher, right? You say, well, yeah, I don't know about the resurrection thing, but, but you know, his parables were good and the way he tells us to live and all of that. Lots of people have said that before, but C.S. Lewis says it can't be possible because Jesus, as he was going around teaching, was also going around saying he was God. And he said he had come ultimately to die on a cross, and he said that in three days he's going to rise again. And so if that's what Jesus said, you can't disconnect his teachings from those things. And if, if people walked around today and said, I'm the son of God, if I got in front of you and I said that, and said, I'm going to die right now, and then three days later I'm going to come back, would you believe a word I said? No. C.S. Lewis says that if that's Jesus, and if he didn't actually rise from the grave, then he's either a liar or he's a lunatic. 
But if he did rise from the grave, then the only other explanation could be that he's God, that he's actually Lord, that he actually did what he said he would do. And what Paul is saying is that he did. Verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In other words, what we believe, and as we read through from the very beginning of the scriptures, is that God's original intent was not for us to die. When I'm sitting with a family who is mourning the loss of their loved one, as we're preparing for a funeral, one of the first things I always say is that God did not intend death. Death was not part of God's divine plan. God wanted us to be with him forever in paradise, in his presence. The reason we have death is because it's the curse of sin. It's the curse of sin that began at the very beginning. Adam and Eve, the very beginning, they sin, we sin. It invites into the world the brokenness that ultimately disconnects us from God and therefore disconnects us from the source of life. And that's why we die. And if it's only left to that, then that's where we will stay for all of eternity. And that's what people believed before Jesus. Even many Jews believed that. Roughly 300 years before Jesus was born, there was a Greek philosopher. His name was Epicurus, and he wrote this. He said, he said why fear death when we can never perceive it? And he had to say it because 2,300 years ago, people were afraid of the same things we're afraid of today. They were afraid of death. And they could not perceive what happens after death because before Jesus, nobody died and then rose from the grave and was able to talk about it and live to tell the story. Well, I'm sorry, Epicurus, but your words didn't age well. Because 300 years after he said these words, somebody did die and they did rise from the grave, and they did live to tell about it. And there have been people ever since that have been talking about it. His name is Jesus. And the world has been fixated on his experience for 2,000 years now. And Paul tells us that his experience is only the beginning. Verse 23, he says, But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So those of us who belong to him, and we belong to him as we enter into a relationship with him, as we enter into the waters of baptism and we die and come out the other side, we will too be brought into this eternal life. And then the end will come, Paul says. When he hands over the kingdom of God and the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This answers the question. It's all really complicated, but it answers the question for us. A lot of times people say, well, why doesn't God just take us home right now? And the reason why is because Jesus is putting all evil under his feet. That he will not be done until he puts every pain, every suffering, every death under his feet. Until he destroys it. The cosmic plan of God for the end of the world is that Jesus is going to take a perfected world, a fixed world, a redeemed world. He is going to put a bow on it and he's going to hand it back to God. And he will not do that until every power and authority that kills anything, that anyone who has ever been hurt or suffered or died until the root cause of all of those things has been placed under his feet. And what this tells us is that Jesus intimately cares. He cares about everything. He cares about everything we pray for. He cares about every hurt. 
at the hand of evil. He cares about every relationship that's been broken and murdered by anger. He cares about every one of our hopes that have been shattered by a broken world. And he came to conquer all of it. And he will conquer all of it. But think about it. Think about everything you've ever prayed for for a second. Just take a mental inventory of anything you've ever asked God for. Every injustice you've asked God to right. Every opportunity you've asked God to bless you with. Every healing you've asked God to give you or your loved ones. Even if God gave you all of those things, it still wouldn't be good news. And you know why? Because that would suggest that God would give us everything we want or even need. And it's not going to matter because at the end of our life, the the rug is going to be pulled out from under our feet. Not to be flippant, but, but what does it matter? In the grand scheme of things, if God gives you that job you were praying for or heals your cancer at 40 and you still die at the age of 90, what matter? What does it matter if my premature son clings to life by the grace of God, is protected by the swine flu, but still ends his life in death? And he will. And you will. And so will I. And we're realists. We tell our kids this. We tell our kids from an early age that they will not live forever, that they will die. And we tell them this because we believe that it is the best news we can possibly share. And you know why? Because when Jesus is finished putting every evil and enemy under his feet in the world, it says in verse 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When my children are on their deathbed, I want them to know that every answered prayer throughout the course of their whole life pales in comparison to what God is about to do. That when they die, instead of ceasing to exist, they are going to fall into the arms of a Savior who has already been there, done that, and come out the other side. Amen? And if you believe that, if you put your hope in that, if that's what your faith clings to, then the words of J.K. Rowling, the author of Harry Potter, now I haven't read the Harry Potter books. Some of you have. You can maybe tell me the context of this. I found this quote, and I thought it was fitting. She said this. She said, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. And it reminded me of an adventure that, that I took just this last summer. My, my premature son and I, he's 11 now. He's far more than three pounds, six ounces and uh, we, we spent a couple days up in Wisconsin Dells. And he wanted to go on the highest roller coaster in the state of Wisconsin, which is at Mount Olympus. Uh, how many of you have been out to Mount Olympus at some point? Show of hands. Now, now it's been years. I, I think it's been since before he was born that I was on a roller coaster. And so I'll just admit to you, I was a little nervous. But when your kid says that he wants to do something, you know, you can't be scared. you got to go. So... So I, I made sure that my life insurance premiums were paid in full. And I, and I Googled Mount Olympus roller coasters because I just I wanted to learn about the contraption that was going to take the life of my firstborn son and I. And some of you can read. This is what happened. You know, when you search things in Google, it usually fills in the blank with things that other people have searched. And so I did this, and no joke. First thing is you search Mount Olympus roller coaster. It fills in roller coasters. But the very next thing it says is death. And then the thing after that is accident. <laughs> now, I should have known this because the name of the ride itself is Hades. Those of you who've been around church for a while, you're laughing because Hades is a Greek word. And you know what the Greek word means? 
It means the place of the dead. <laughs> it's actually in the Bible, and that's what they decided to name this roller coaster. But you know, Jacob wanted to go, and so we're going to go. And so we kissed the rest of our family goodbye. I told Alyssa what songs I wanted sung at my funeral. And we started on the long walk to the place of the dead. <laughs> of course, it felt like it took forever. And we got in line and we savored every last moment of our earthly existence. And we got to the front of the line. And some, you know, I'm like getting really, I'm nervous, right? I'm getting really like picky. And I'm looking around and I'm like, have they, like how, long, how old is this thing? Have they maintained it? Don't they, aren't they supposed to have some like license on the wall that says this thing's still good for pu the public? And, and we sit down and we strap ourselves in and some like 14-year-old like kid that has no business ensuring my safety comes and checks the straps of my son and I. And I'm like, get out of here. And I'm checking my own kid and I'm checking myself. And then we started our ascent. Now, now I, I, I joke, I, I really felt nervous. I was really scared. But back in the day when I was growing up, I mean, we used to have, we used to have season passes to Six Flags Great America. Like, we went all the time. And as soon as we started to move, all of those feelings started to come back as you started the ascent. And I remember even then, like the first time I'd go on a roller coaster, I'd be looking around and like, how do you get this thing to stop? If, if, if I scream loud enough, is there like a ladder? You know, you start thinking these things and you're scared and you're more scared. The higher it goes and the clicks get louder and you see where you came from and you see your hotel and you see all of these things. It was terrifying until the roller coaster crossed over the top. And in that moment, all of the terrifying feelings immediately turn to exhilaration. As a matter of fact, it was so much fun. The first thing we did when we got off the ride is we got in line and we went on it again and again and again. There was like no line. So we went again and again and again until I could feel that I am not 11 years old and I had to tell my son my back hurts and we're going to have to wait and go tomorrow. Now forgive me for making light of death, but the story is relevant because in the grand scheme of the kingdom of God, you and I are the 11-year-old boy who's never been on a roller coaster, and Jesus is the one taking our hand on the roller coaster of life and saying to us, I've been here before. I've done this before. Literally, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and Hades, the place of the dead. And friends, if you trust Jesus, the one who holds the keys of death and Hades is also the one who holds you. That's why I shared this quote by Ravi Zacharias back on Easter, and I'll share it to you, with you again. Jesus did not come to make bad people good or good people better. He came to make dead people alive again amen so take his hand know that jesus cares intimately about every hurt every evil every injustice but what he cares about most is death which is why it is of first importance that we know that he died and he rose from the grave all so that we too might live with him forever Thank you.
Of all the fears that grip our hearts, no fear is greater than the fear of death. There are those who will tell you that death is a natural part of life. But if death is just a part of life, then why does it cause us such anger and sorrow? When God created humanity, he intended for us to grow more and more beautiful over time. But in one tragic moment, we unleashed sin into the world, and everything broke, including our bodies. Death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it fills God's heart with anger and sorrow even more than it does ours, because death was not a part of God's original plan. The Bible says that when Jesus approached the tomb of his friend Lazarus, he quaked with rage, and his eyes filled with tears. He was overwhelmed by the suffering caused by death, a curse we had brought upon ourselves. Death's curse was physical. Both the world and our bodies were decaying. But death's curse was also spiritual, eternally separating humanity from their creator, the source of all light, love, and life. But because of God's amazing love, he chose to surrender all power and glory to rescue us from death. Jesus, God's only son, was expelled from the presence of the Father and thrust into complete darkness in our place. He took humanity's curse upon himself, breaking death's grip on us and purchasing humanity a place at the Father's side forever. A day is coming when the true king will return at last to restore the world to its full glory and us with it, renewing both soul and body. You'll still be yourself, but even more so. You'll finally be the real you. On that day, we'll look at each other and say, I always knew you could be like this. I saw glimpses of the real you, flashes of it, and now here you are. Our future is not an ethereal, impersonal one. You're not going to float through the clouds. You're going to walk. You're going to eat. You're going to laugh. You're going to hug. You're going to sing in realms and degrees of power and joy that you cannot now imagine. Some will tell you not to fear death because it's part of life. But Jesus says not to fear death because it's been defeated. And the day will come when Jesus embraces you with his nail-scarred hands and says, Welcome home. I have so much to show you. Lord Jesus, that is our hope. That as we cling to you on this side of heaven, we believe. As we are invited into your presence, into relationship with you, as we die to our old selves in the waters of baptism, we come out a new creation. And we look ahead at your experience through life and death and we remember your words that say, in this world there will be trouble, but fear not, for I have overcome the world. You've even overcome death. That's why we gather around this, this feast table that's known as the, 
a foretaste of the feast to come, the, the marriage feast that will have no end, the meal that you will invite us into as we enter with you through the gates of heaven. None of it would be possible if you hadn't entered those gates first. If you didn't open the door, if you didn't die a very real death, that you might be able to conquer death for us and all who believe. And you give us this meal to comfort us with your presence. As you gave it to the disciples on the night that you were betrayed, and you took bread with them, and you take it with us, and you broke it, and you said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. And for all people, for the forgiveness of sins, the thing that has brought death, my death has overcome. Whenever you eat this, remember me. After the supper, Jesus took the cup of blessing, gave thanks and gave it for all to drink, saying, take and drink this cup. It's the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink this, remember me. As often as we eat this bread and we drink from this cup, do you know, and some of you are included in this group of people, there are people who desperately fall over the threshold of the doorway of the church each and every week to come to this table to be reminded of Jesus' death so that they would be reminded that he has overcome it and overcome it for you and me as well. And the only thing you need to do to begin to experience that new life that you have in him is do the same thing that you would do if someone were to reach out and hand you a gift. Open up your hands. As we open up our hands, we open them up as a sign of surrender, and we pray not our own words, but we pray the words that Jesus has taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, no matter what your background, we welcome you because he welcomes you. Come, come to the table.